broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. Occasionally we get letters that tell us that we're encouraging crime by covering what have been called murder movies rather than horror films. I find it difficult to believe that a 90-minute movie or a batch of stills in a movie magazine is likely to send anyone down the path to hell. Among horror fans, there may be a few souls so desperately wounded by life that they do confuse cinema nightmares with everyday reality. If so, I'm convinced that Fangoria would be more of a help than harm to such people. That was a 1982 editorial quote from the late Uncle Bob Martin, one of the many visionaries behind the original incarnation of the mighty Fangoria magazine. A mad chronicle of horror movies, gore, monsters, aliens, and bizarre creatures. We need to go back a bit to understand the magnitude of idiosyncrasies that were shared by an entire generation of cinemaniacs, many of which have since marched on with their dreams of crafting their very own macabre films into a reality. Let's travel back in time to the 80s, where there was no smartphone instant gratification, no World Wide Web and no access to behind-the-scenes production yarns and the outright shocking uncensored images of simulated gore and weird creatures forged by the hands of the makeup effects kings, that is, unless you had a copy of Fangoria in your hands. It was a privilege to collect if you were young, because most parents wouldn't let their kids anywhere near it. It was a bookstore taboo to organizations of indecency, with no black bag protecting delicate eyes from the carnage that would often audaciously grace the cover. I remember rushing to the stands at the local Walden Books to get a copy with my mother not too far in tow. It was issue number 47, and a gruesome, mutilated image from George A. Romero's 1985 motion picture Day of the Dead graced the cover. A zombie named Dr. Tongue, and he was named this way because his face was torn off, leaving only a mangled facade of sinew, bone, blood, and a dangling tongue. A Second City TV alias lovingly borrowed by its creator, effects legend Tom Savini. My mother brought the issue to the counter for purchase, only to be lectured by the misinformed Holy Roller at the register. She insulted my mother and told her that the magazine wasn't for kids. This struck a raw nerve deep in the woman's subconscious, perhaps somewhere in her religious guilt, the fear of certain mortality with nothing after, and the face of death took over, leaving her first propensity to censor it for everyone. That wasn't her job. Tony Timpone, who later became the editor-in-chief of Fangoria, defended the magazine on many talk shows, including the volatile and outrageous Morton Downey Jr. show. No, I don't think they have to regulate themselves. It's up to the individual to decide. They don't have to regulate themselves. No, they don't. If, if someone wants to see a horror film, they're allowed to, they should be allowed to see a horror film. So you have film. no self If someone doesn't want to uh, see the movie, they don't have to. Just do you like think people, do you think show, people who maybe don't have fully developed cognitive reasoning, such as maybe a 12 or 13-year-old, should uh, 
be allowed to just arbitrarily go in and see any slasher film he wants? No, it's up to the parent to decide, not the government, not not the, a ratings group. It's up to the parent. But how can the decide. parent decide when a parent doesn't know what the hell it is? Well, they should know. They should know. They oh, should take I an should interest take in all their my time. I should therefore go to That's every right. ice Regardless of how many horror films that I devoured, there wasn't a bone in my body back then that would enjoy man, woman, beast, or child getting hurt, let alone murdered. But I loved the movies. I spent my days studying the pages, the filmmakers, designers, and special effects. I knew without a doubt that I wanted to be, and always will be, a movie maker. I owe that dedication large in part to those early Fangoria magazines. Tonight's guest is another child of horror movies in Fangoria epitomized, and will learn his story and perspective after this commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome to the world of terror. When I'm not busy embalming bodies, which isn't often, I like to relax with some good family reading. Let me introduce you to my personal library of Fangoria, the leader in horror entertainment. What a fascinatingly hideous cover of Freddy Krueger and devilishly candid reviews of the latest horror videos and gloriously bloody color photos from the newest Friday the 13th. They're all here in Fangoria. Can I persuade you to subscribe? Ah, oh, let the dead bodies wait. to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's guest is a kindred spirit who I originally met on the set of George A. Romero's motion picture, Diary of the Dead. He was there shooting and hosting a short behind-the-scenes documentary for Fangoria magazine. He grew up like many post-FM monster kids, obsessed with not only the magazine itself, but the movies and artists within. A short time after meeting him, he became the editor-in-chief, blazing a unique trail behind the wheel of the legendary chronicles of over 40 years of our favorite genre. His name is Chris Alexander, and his personal inspiration and life experience has been applied to a variety of mediums within the arts. Tonight, we discuss his life as a teacher, musician, filmmaker, delirium magazine editor, and father of several monster kids. Here's my interview with Chris Alexander. I was born in uh, Toronto, uh, Canada, and I uh, lived most of my life there until I moved just outside of Toronto, but I've always pretty much lived within that area, uh, what they call the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area. Um, and, you know, I, I my dad was really into the Twilight Zone and and into science fiction, Harlan Ellison, uh, psychedelic rock. He used to put headphones on me and when I was like two or three and make me point left and right so whenever I could hear certain sounds coming in uh, out of what speakers in my head, the big cans, you know, Jimi Hendrix's Are You Experienced record. And he would come up with like narratives, like, you know, the song Third, Third Stone from the Sun off side two of, of that album. He would uh, come up with this whole story that there were these 
banshees from space coming down to destroy the earth. And so I'd be like, my imagination would just be rolling. And I remember discovering space. He was a cab driver and in the basement of the, uh, you know, the office where he would go and check in as they did uh, in the basement, they had space invaders down there. And if you remember the art for space invaders, they look like these shaggy kind of outlines, these kind of weird creatures on the side of the cabinet. And, and to me, those were the banshees from third stone from the sun. I was putting it all together. So I was like, wow, all this crazy cool stuff that, uh, you know, that exists out there. That's so unnatural. That's so unlike the normal beat of the world that I seem to exist in. There's a fantasy world that, that is only exists in music and, and the moving image and the, and the comic book page. And so I was really into that. Um, then a couple of things really started happening for me. Uh, in these early years. One, I discovered the band Kiss, not because I discovered the music, but because I found the cover of the album Love Gun in the local library. It was misfiled with the children's records. And I was just astounded that Ken Kelly painting of the band standing in that, uh, you know, whatever that is, that weird chamber, that ritualistic dungeon or whatever it is with the big stone pillars and the ghostly semi-nude vampire women heaving at their feet. And these four characters that look like something out of some dark dream. And Gene Simmons with his head back and his bat wings and his fangs. He was my first vampire, I think, you know. And I was really scared of Gene. I used to have nightmares of him coming through the ceiling vents and stuff. And, but I was like really interested. Like, what is this band? And I, I got to get my dad hated Kiss. He said, no, I'm not getting that record for you because Kiss sucks. And that was the consensus amongst the Pinkies Up rock and roll crowd at the time, of course, especially in 77, 78, when Kiss was kind of a cartoon. But, you know, I needed to find out more and more and more and more. But then in, in 78, my dad brought home a record uh, that changed my life, that really kind of combined my burgeoning interest in art. So comic books, art, uh, weird fantasy storytelling, music, and um, and movies. You know, I was really into to movies, although I hadn't really watched a movie all the way through. I'd seen moments. I'd be up in the mornings with my mom watching Citizen Kane on the CBC uh, Sunday morning movie. It was a, kind of a ritual every week. And, and I was consuming Sesame Street at the time, which kind of had a weird, in the 70s, weird cinematic dark element to it. Uh, anyways, I digress. The album was Jeff Wayne's musical version of War of the Worlds, which is a double disc progressive rock album. Uh, completely produced, designed, and composed by a British... Um, musician named Jeff Wayne and his father. And uh, it is the telling of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds set in, you know, steampunk Victorian England. But it's done with a purely 70s bombastic rock opera sheen, complete delivery that way, with Richard Burton as the narrator, as the journalist. And uh, Phil Lynette from uh, Thin Lizzy is one of the singers and Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues. It's one of the most rapturous, incredible oral entertainments you'll ever hear. And it blew my mind. And now accompanying that book, if you're a fan of that album, you know it's the artwork too that seals the deal. And there was a huge book inside with graphically illustrated images of the tripods marauding around London, you know, melting uh, people, babies being trampled in the streets. And, and then, of course, at the end, when the Martians finally die after bacteria, their helmets of their tripods are exposed and their brains dripping blood are coming out of the top, seeping out of the top of the tripod and crows are coming down and like eating their brains. And, and it was just, I can't even articulate it, but I remember it explicitly sitting on the floor in front of those giant speakers, listening to this and looking at this album 
and, and thinking about it and getting up every day and having to spin it again and again and again, it became, you know, the fabric of my being, the, the spine of what I would pursue. So that album was a huge part of my life. And then discovering wax museums in Niagara Falls and Clifton Hill in Canada, the aesthetics of those, the weirdness of them, the, the fear of them, and the fact that you'd be in these horrible wax museums and you'd come out the other end in the gift shop. So you're in the seventh circle of hell and then suddenly the carpenters are playing on the other side and you're like, well, that dichotomy of, of being like in another planet of fear and horror and then opening a door and then everything's innocuous. And so just, and then you start to intellectualize your reactions to these things. So that those that you asked for a moment, I couldn't narrow it down to a definitive moment. It's so many moments surrounding that era, that golden age of discovery when I was so little and I was allowed to discover you know, my uncle, he was, is still, he's still alive. He was mentally handicapped. He's slow, but not in a way that crippled him from functioning. It was kind of a curse for the man, unfortunately, because he was not intelligent enough to live a normal life and, and too smart uh, in that he knew that he was slow and, and was unable. He was always on the outside looking in. So I always attributed him in many ways to be the Frankenstein monster personified, this misunderstood creature who uh, nobody really understood except me. And he was obsessed with Frankenstein, obsessed with monsters, comic books, view masters, you name it. And uh, I really, you know, I would go over there and we would stay up all night and watch horror movies and trade videotapes. And, um, you know, it was just, I had an amazing childhood where I was allowed to discover and pursue the more arcane entertainments. So that was an incredible time because you had all of these different genres and all of this media hitting you at once. You had everything from universal monsters to the current horror films to comic books. But in all of that, in that entire universe during those formative years, those very crucial formative years, was there anything that shocked you? Was there anything that made you repel from horror? Sure. And that goes back to music too. So my aunt would take me, um, I mean, if you're in Toronto, downtown Toronto, there's a street called Young Street. Young Street was our 42nd Street. And uh, like New York, it's been long since cleaned up and sanitized. But when I was little, she used to take me down there, you know, a couple times a month. And I'd buy rock and roll t-shirts. We'd go to the head shops. I didn't know what those glass things were. I was like, what the hell is this? We'd bikers everywhere. It was a real kind of real esoteric clientele that, you know, Maybe I shouldn't have been hanging around down there, but why not? It, everyone was super cool, super nice, and there was so much to, to discover. So many, again, it's like look, I was always obsessed with looking in other directions where everyone else was not looking. I wanted to see what was out there, and that's when I discovered Fangoria. And you know, I was—I remember the first Fangoria I picked up, uh, and it was there was two of them. One was in 1982, the issue with the burning on the front, the excerpt from a Tom Savini's, uh, from Tom Savini's grand illusions. When you opened it up, the scream grates poster was uh, my bloody Valentine and the girl falling out of the dryer shot. And it was quite disgusting, but it wasn't, it was super weird. So I wasn't like really disgusted, but then there was another issue I picked up, which had the dead zone, David Cronenberg's the dead zone in it. And you pull the Scream Greats poster out, and it's the shot of Nicholas Campbell in the bath with the scissors in his mouth, just cutting his lip that have jammed into his brain. And and it was just the shot of like, you know, I knew what my lips were, and I knew they were fragile. And to see, and I knew scissors were sharp and dangerous, but to see the lip being cut with the look on the guy's face with his eyes looking up and 
I was really revolted and disturbed by that, that shot. And I couldn't get it out of my head for a long time. Even now today, I can see it and I can still feel an echo, a reverberation of that revulsion. But then back to the rock and roll thing, my aunt would also take me record shopping when I was down on Young Street. And uh, I always look for Kiss because I was collecting Kiss records at this point. And, you know, you get almost get them all, but then suddenly you find some weird Japanese import. You're like, oh, cool, a different cover. Uh, but I remember I was never a huge ACDC fan, but I'd look, you know, all the bands that were on the list, I'd check and see if I could pick something up. But it was the album, the live album, If You Want Blood, You've Got It. And if you know that cover, it's got, uh, I guess it's Angus Young getting stabbed in the stomach with a, the end of a guitar and blood squirting all over. And then, the, then you turn it over and he's dead on the ground. And, and that was really, I was obsessed with that, but I was really disgusted by it. And I was really sad. Like, I think it made me sad. I, I, violence has always made me sad. You know, I've always enjoyed violence in movies, but never in a way where I've been, I've been like one of those, those guys who get, oh, awesome kills, man. I've never been that awesome kills guy. I've appreciated violence and horror and violence in movies if it makes me feel revolted and sad. You know, I remember watching An American Werewolf in London. My dad, uh, 1981, we bought a ticket for The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, we snuck into um, American Werewolf. So I would have been seven. Probably way too young to see an American Werewolf in London theatrically. But it was a definitive experience in my life. And, uh, you know, a lot of violence in that film. Tons of it. A lot of fantasy violence, too. But, you know, Jack getting um, ripped apart by the werewolf at the beginning and how gory and revolting that is and his his persistent decay throughout the film. And and then, of course, at the end when David himself gets executed. And, I mean, there's a lot of violence in that film. And all of it was necessary to the film. And all of it made me feel sad. I felt like a genuine sense of loss at that that violence. So gore for gore's sake has never really appealed to me unless it's, you know, something cartoonishly gory, like an evil dead or something. So seeing the cover of that ACDC record where a guy is, you know, remember the band is senselessly getting stabbed to death by the end of a guitar and then left for dead. Uh, I found very shocking and very upsetting and, and depressed by seeing that image. It's an amazing duality because you're, you're obsessed with all this stuff and you're repelled by it, yet you want to see more. At that time, were you also interested in getting into special effects makeup? Yeah, wanting more, but also trying to, again, always trying to intellectualize. Part of the joy of, of this stuff for me as a young kid was trying to figure out why I was like a living science experiment. If I was reacting a certain way, why was I reacting to it? Because I knew it wasn't real. I was very aware of it being artificial. So why was, why, why was I so susceptible to the magic trick? You know, how did I fall for this gag and, and why was I feeling this way? And yes, why did I keep wanting to come back? Why did I keep wanting to push my boundaries to see how much I could take before I shied away? It's like putting your hand closer and closer to the fire. Uh, even though when it starts to burn, you want to see how long you can hold it there before you can't take it anymore. So there's definitely some weird little masochistic streak, but even that I wanted to understand why I had that streak. Well, where did that come from? Uh, so that's always been a, an, an appeal uh, for me, for, for the genre. Um, to, what was your question again? Because I, I kind of lost, I went up my own ass there for a minute. Yeah, no problem. Um, what I was saying was, and, and the reason why I mentioned special effects is because you're exposed to gore and you're exposed to these things, yet it's not exactly real violence. 
So there's this duality. So you're obsessed with special effects makeup and you're beginning to be obsessed with horror films. Yet, you know, were you ever exposed to real violence? And I'm sure real violence upset you. Maybe it's not the case for everybody, but in your case, was it? Sure, sure, sure. Well, yes. And for, to pause there, we actually both felt got, we drifted away there because actually now I'm flashing back. Your question was also if I wanted to be a special effects artist. So I'll, I'll drag that back into both. But yes, there, there was, a, first of all, the real life murder. Yes, uh, there was a little girl was. Now, this is back in the day. People say, oh, we were safer when we were kids. Like, were we? I don't know. We just weren't a global village being inundated by news. So half of the time, most of us were unaware of, of the crimes that were being committed around us, I think. But there was a little girl on my street who was went missing, and uh, she was later found raped and murdered. Very little girl in this building just down the street. My friend lived in it, and that was a shocking moment for all of us. That was, you know, every child has the end of the innocence, and that was kind of the end of the innocence because you suddenly didn't feel safe, uh, and then you're very disturbed because this child was one of you. When you're little, you feel immortal. And all these films that you're watching and entertainments, again, exist in another void. They're not real. But when something real happens and it happens to appear, then you really start to think, my gosh, I'm really just a bag of, of fluid and, and mistakes, just like they, in the movies. And I could go at any time. And this is horrible. And you see the people in the news, the parents crying and the emotional fallout of death, the misery of it, the tapestry of misery really hit me hard. I've always been afraid of death. I don't like real death at all. I know people that pursued lives as morticians that uh, I couldn't even imagine being in that field. I would not be able to handle it because I'd be just too depressed and too uh, unsettled by it all, you know. Uh, and there was a, a moment in the park across the street from my condominium where we lived. It was a little, little kind of shrub area. And I remember going to school and people saying, there's a dead body in that shrub. There's a dead body there. And then we were just like really little and friends would run over the shrub and they'd come back like all out of breath. They go, yeah, there's a dead body there. It's all covered in blood. Well, this got around the school. And I remember after school being up in the balcony of my condo looking out and all the cops came and they were weeding through this giant shrub area and they came out and they pulled out what they thought was a body. And I remember that moment of just being completely jaw on the ground, shocked and horrified that this was true turned out it was a pieces of a mannequin. So this kind of, someone had seen this piece of a mannequin, this, this head and this torso, and, and it had all got around that there was this corpse and this thing. And it was really dramatic and really upsetting. And, and uh, you know, I never forgot this, how, how horrified I was and how many nightmares I had about this, even when it was debunked about this dead body uh, in the bush. But um, so there's that. But as far as the special effects thing, oh my gosh. Yeah, when I discovered Fangoria, and discovered the wizard behind the curtain and saw the mechanics of this shit. And it was an American werewolf in London that really did it. Seeing that too, watching uh, David Naughton grow into Rick Baker's werewolf, like literally grow into it. I mean, that's like wizard behind the curtain. We know how that's done now, but in 81, Jesus Christ. I mean, there was I, not many people knew the secrets of, of how that happened. It was flawless and shocking. And I wanted to be Rick Baker. Plus this was a time you know, I was coming of age, you know, at this point, like nine, 10, eight, nine, 10 in the early eighties, uh, Savini and Rick Baker and Robertine and all these guys, they looked cool. You know, they had long hair and beards and they looked like rock stars, you know, they looked like uh, the, the Almond Brothers or something. And it just looked like a lifestyle, like these rogue pirates that would somehow be doing these incredible things and making these monsters. And I wanted to be 
I wanted to be Rick Baker. Absolutely. And now here I am in Toronto, Canada. This was way before the internet, the way before you could Halloween would pop up stores like Spirit Halloween would show up and you could buy liquid latex and fun stuff like this. There was no way in hell I had any access to this universe except for the back pages of Fangoria, where if I scrimped and scraped, I could maybe order like a little tube of latex or something. But I mean, I didn't know how I'd get to there, to that level, but I knew I had to get to that level somehow. Now, as I aged, practicality sets in, you realize, okay, maybe I can't be an effects artist, but maybe I can make movies. And then you realize I can't do that because it's 16 millimeter film and it costs a fortune. And Well, then maybe I, I'm a musician too. Maybe I can make music for movies in my head. And then, oh no, I, yeah, I can do that. And it's, you know, modest returns, but I'm also a good writer. So maybe I can write about the movies I love and communicate that way. And then I'll find my way in somehow to this world. And, and long story short, I did, but it all started with getting bitten literally by uh, Rick Baker's werewolf and wanting to be him. And I think it's important to understand that this is a lifelong journey, beginning in childhood, becoming a filmmaker or a special effects artist and all of that. It's a commitment for life. And um, so going forward, you know, especially in regard to violence, and it's not all horror films have to offer, but a lot of them have it, especially the ones we grew up on. It was They were very violent pictures coupled with some of the best special effects makeup ever. And at what point did you become, because I know of your work, did you become obsessed with the art of murder? I guess ranging from Hitchcock to Dario Argento, Mario Bava, all of those films display as set pieces the art of murder. Well, it was, you know, I remember seeing the first Argento movie I saw was a revelation. And uh, I mean, I just, I, I was aware of the stylization of death in horror from as soon as I saw a horror film. I mean, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 78, was one of the first horror movies I actually watched and traumatized me. But it was the use of the um, the fetal heart monitor, you know, as the pods were like pulsing and growing and how nightmarish that was. And then juxtaposed with some of that Denny Zitlin jazz music, which was really weird. And, and I was very aware of how music was drawing me in and creating an environment. But Argento was different because there was rock and roll. So you had that, I remember seeing Deep Red for the first time I'd rented it. And I really didn't know much about it. It was the early days of video. And it was the thorny MI uh, cover that has the doll on it, a very blurry shot of the doll, the walking dummy. And uh, it was called Deep Red Hatchet Murders. It's the American cut, a little less gore, a little less humor in the American cut. But anyways, what it did have is plenty of goblin music. So all these long fluid shots of how fetishized everything was. You know, I didn't really understand what fetishizing things were at that point, but I understood the obsession that this film represented, the stylization of murder and how beautiful it could be when it was set to the beat when it was said to the rhythm of something, it was still graphic and, and shocking and upsetting, but it was going beyond that to become something completely phantasmagorical. Italian horror is what hooked me on that level. And really, uh, and then Lucio Fulci's uh, Gates of Hell, City of the Living Dead, and uh, Fabio Fritzi's music pounding away as once her pickle vomits her entire intestinal tract, or John Morgan gets his head drilled and all these scenes that would be shocking and revolting, but were done in such an operatic way, were so grand and over the top, a grand guignol, you know. I mean, but then set to that music, which is like Pink Floyd from Hell. I mean, 
it was creating a heightened sense of reality to me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, th that was, those Italian movies are what really sharp focused, um, the idea that, um, the misery of murder could be repositioned and, and stylized to be something beautiful and operatic. And, you know, Brian's discovering Brian De Palma a little bit later, uh, same way, you know, De Palma and Argento, obviously marching lockstep towards their, their final destinations, very similar in palette, uh, you know, and, the, and then John Carpenter and I mean, all that stuff where they would take murder, but make it so lush by using and exploiting sound. And music, uh, you know, and, and delirious visuals and editing and, and making it so exciting, you know, but but not not in a way where I was coming out of there going, yes, now I'm going to just like my everyone's parents say during the satanic panic, I'm going to arm myself and now go murder somebody. It's like, no, 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 I'm not an idiot. This is sheer technique. This is sheer uh, escapism. I mean, it's not based on anything I know to be reality. Was there any work of cinema at that time that may have went too far for you? and that you wouldn't revisit? Uh, there were things that went too far to me um, psychologically that I found too disturbing, but they, it's not because they were violent. Later on, uh, when I saw things like, um, I was as an adult seeing Lars von Trier's Antichrist or you know, uh, something like that, which I found too shocking because I'd had a child at that point, and it starts with the death of a child, and let alone the, the clitoris being cut off and all that nonsense. That was lesser than seeing a child die. But there were... Um, I remember seeing clearly there was an episode of the remake. There was a Canadian remount of, I'm sure you got it in the States too. It was syndicated everywhere, but it was Canadian blooded. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents. Yes, of course it was a co-production because there were tons of American actors. And the well, Blythe Danner, Kurt Russell's first wife was in this one particular episode. And I think it was a remake of an original Hitch episode where a woman, she commits murder. I think she murders her husband and she's sent to jail. She's a, scrupulous bitch, remorseless, uh, but still has a lot of money. And she notices every night when, or once a week, someone dies in the prison, a, a bell goes off and, and the old caretaker guy comes and puts the body in the coffin and takes it out to the back to be shipped away to the graveyard to be buried. And so she realizes this is my out. She manipulates the old guy, knows that he's impoverished. And she says she's going to give him X amount of money if she arranges with the guards to leave the door open. Next time a bell goes off and she goes off and sneaks inside one of the coffins and he takes her out, buries her alive and comes back later and digs her up. And then he'll be rich beyond his wildest dream. Well, plan goes ahead. One night the bell rings. She sneaks out the corridor and goes into the coffin. She gets in there with the corpse and then she feels the guy pick up the coffin and the coffin gets put into the back of the, you know, the, the truck, the hearse, wheeled off to where it needs to go. In this world, uh, there's no more uh, no mortician, apparently. You just die, you get put in the ground. Anyways, goes off to the graveyard. She's put in the ground. She hears the earth whoosh, 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 being shoveled on top of her. So being a claustrophobic by person by nature, I was already on edge. And then she's left in the coffin. She's waiting, and she's waiting, and she's waiting. And it appears no one's coming. So she starts to lose her fucking mind, and she's getting sweaty, and her air is running out, and she's now she's laughing. Now in her hand, in her pocket, she has a pack of matches and, uh, and she's losing her mind and her, her psychology is turning into mush. And she says, well, let's just see who I'm in here with. Huh? Who are you? Who are you? And she lights the match and it's the old guy. So she, that means, of course, as the camera pans back over the grave, all you can see is the wind whistle, whipping over the grave and 
and you can hear this almost silent scream as she shrieks shrill before it fades out. I mean, that to me was something that caro syrup and latex and stylized violence could never do to, to make me afraid and get under my skin. That absolutely horrified me. I was in a state of shock and a state of terror for so long after seeing that episode uh, and thinking about it. What that does is it puts you in the position of the person in the grave who's absolutely hopeless. And there's no, literally no way to get out of that situation except to die screaming and in terror. And uh, yeah, that did it to me. And I, I've only seen that episode once. I'm sure it's on YouTube, but I, even today, as a grown ass man, I, I don't, I don't have any desire to go back there. See, in a way, that's even more interesting to me because the question I have is you grew up with all of this violence and gore and a variety of horror films, not just that. But then you come across this episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which is completely suspenseful. And that's the thing that scares the hell out of you. And I understand that. And do you think because you grew up with uh, an understanding of special effects makeup and that this was art, that it, it expanded your mind to the point now where something like that, I think it's more of a cerebral reaction. It ha it's more sophisticated. You can, you can now appreciate and be, be terrified by other things, whereas the normal person would just be repelled from someone getting a cut or the slightest bit of gore in a movie. Yes. And what I find really amusing is that I grew up with all this stuff. I remember we had in Canada here, we did not have HBO, for instance. We had in the early days of cable, we had something called a uh, first choice and they did not have the wealth or ability to license the bulk of titles that HBO would or any of your cable stations. So they would have a handful of titles and they'd run them every day. So here I am at like six or seven and I was watching, um, Ivan Reitman's Heavy Metal, the X-rated, R-rated animated animated movie with tons of tits and blood and gore. And uh, Paul Schrader's Cat People, an escape from New York. And I saw Cronenberg's Rabid for the first time at that. It was just the same like handful of movies that they show like every day. I was watching these movies over and over and over and over. And they were, you know, definitely not for a six, seven-year-old kid. But they weren't affecting me in any kind of derogatory way. I've never been traumatized or I didn't grow up to be any kind any wicked of thought. They were fun. And even the, the shocking sexual aspects of them, when you're little and you don't have any point of reference to, to sex, so you can see it, but you don't really understand the mechanics of it or, you know, the way it feels or any of this. So it's just an, it's a complete artifice to you. It's just as phony baloney as anything else. It doesn't hit you. Uh, but something happens when we grow up and we lose the child and, uh, then we start becoming suspicious and we start being guarded and we think, you know, whether we could become parents and then we start to forget that kids can absorb a lot of stuff that's not going to affect them. And some, somehow we forget that. Most parents forget that anyways. I mean, I, I remember one of my own kids, I have three little boys and they were raised around this stuff too. Very liberal. Although I haven't shown them heavy metal because I, I'm always afraid I'm going to show them weird sex stuff and it's going to warp them irrevocably. Of course it won't, but, um, but, you know, they were more terrified of Pinocchio, the fucking whale, you know, chasing monster of the whale, chasing Geppetto and Pinocchio, screaming and diving, coming at them, They're screaming. They were, my kids were screaming. Then they were of, of like Dawn of the Dead, 
already. I remember hyping up Dawn of the Dead so much to them saying, oh my God, I saw it when I was 11 and I actually had night terrors from it. And it's true. I did. And it's just like, it's too much. It's too heavy. It's just all about death. And then, and they were, that's all they could think about. We want to watch Dawn of the Dead. We want to watch Dawn of the Dead. We, we got to see Dawn of the Dead. We, and then they saw it. They loved it, but they weren't scared of it at all. It meant nothing to them fear wise, you know. And outside of Pinocchio, what scared the kids? Were there other films or what scares them? Like Pinocchio scared the horror movies don't really do it to them. Some do. Like for instance, my 15 year old had a sleepover the other night. And him and his buddy, he's like, dad, you got to recommend us a movie that's going to scare us. You keep pointing us to these movies that scare you, you know, but they don't scare us. And I'm like, okay, well, there's a newer one that's really going to mess you up. It's called Hereditary, right? And I said, okay, this one's pretty intense. And, and they're like, yeah, okay, we'll give it a shot, but we know it's not going to scare us. Of course, they, um, they, they're in the basement in our, in our arcade room and they're, they're down there watching it. I go to bed. 1.30 in the morning, I hear them milling around. And I hear their voices. These are teenagers, you know, on the cusp of manhood. Whatever, I go back to sleep. Next morning, I come up and they've been in their brothers, my, you know, my son's brother's rooms who weren't home at the time. They pushed the beds together. They fortified the bed with pillows and Nerf guns. They didn't finish hereditary because it fucked them up too much. They were too scared, too disturbed. They had crept upstairs front. They couldn't be in the basement anymore. That was it. And they had to go and put their beds together and sleep with Nerf guns because they were out and they didn't sleep at all, all night. They just lay awake staring at the ceiling. They were so scared of that movie, you know? So, and, uh, you know, they said, dad, you didn't tell us it was so disturbing. So everyone's got their, you know, that's the beauty of the genre, as you know, um, it's the subjectivity of it and what scares you and when and how is not necessarily going to scare me. And, and it's all the environment and how you frame it and when you see it and how you see it. So Hereditary was the rare horror movie that actually freaked out my son. Most of the time, um, no, they're not. They get scared by innocuous things, you know, things that normally you and I would not find frightening. You know, there, there's one movie that I, I, I need to ask if you saw at a young age. Did you see The Last House on the Left? Obviously a movie that contains brutal violence, rape, murder, uh, very real for its time and powerful to this day. Did you see that movie as a kid? I did not. I did not. And I'm wondering why I didn't. Uh, I knew of it, of course. I think I, I, because I was reading Fangoria at the time. And even Fango had kind of a, I remember Elshin Gorezone, you know, and Tim Luke, or even the, no, I remember what it, what it was. It was Fango. It was the video eye of Dr. Cyclops column. And uh, they had review, were reviewing a VHS, one of the myriad VHS releases at that time of Last House, the VCI, I'm not sure who put it out. And the review basically said that this movie's pretty deplorable and indefensible and, and vile and all these things. And I was actually not afraid to watch it, but I was very aware that it was a lot of, a lot of rape and, and things of that nature. And I, I, maybe I just didn't, it just didn't speak to me. I was nervous to watch it. Same thing with Maniac. It took me a while to get to Maniac because I'd heard so many things about it via Fangoria that actually were kind of warning me not to see it in certain columns. Tim Lucas's column, Video Watchdog. Uh, not down on it at all, but kind of warning me, you know. Um, so, yeah, I came late to Last House on the left. By the time I saw it, I think my first impression initially was I couldn't get past how cheap it was. So I never really bought it. You know, I spit on your grave. However, when I did catch up to that, that did 
upset me quite a bit. But uh, Last House never did. There was too much comedy, little comedy moments. And I've since learned to appreciate the film a great deal as a movie. And I, I, I think it's, uh, I don't think it's Craven's best film. It's his first dance, but, um, you know, I still appreciate it as a movie, but it never offended me. I saw it too late. And you're a, you're a movie maker now, and you've been for a little while now. Where, where did your, your style and interest really solidify? And was it always that way? Were you always interested in, in making your version of, of these wonderful Italian and French uh, stylized horror films that you grew up watching? Well, by the time I was able to actually make a, a feature, I was older and uh, my first movie was in 2012. So I'm 46 now and do the math. So I was a little bit older. I was a father. I was the editor of Fangoria magazine. I always consider myself a filmmaker, uh, consider myself a filmmaker, even though I wasn't making films because uh, I was making a lot of music. And in my mind, that like War of the Worlds back in 78, I was creating audible horror films in my mind. But the actual idea of, putting a movie together with my music was very appealing to me. I wanted to do it. I always wanted to do it. I just didn't know how to do it. And I didn't want to spend my own money because I was very, I was coming at it from a very practical standpoint where I could see people mortgaging their house and, you know, losing and losing and losing and betting. I'm not a gambling man. So I was like, eh, I don't want to put my own dough on this. I made a deal with Severn Pictures uh, who had started a company with another company uh, called, oh my God, I forget the name of the company they started. That's really stupid. But anyways, they had started a little label specialized in auteur indie films. And the only two films they ever produced were my first film, Blood for Irina, and uh, The Bunny Game. They distributed The Bunny Game, which was pretty hardcore compared to my film. Um, Blood for Irina is more romantic in its violence and bloodshed. Uh, Bunny Games, you know, tie the girl to the chair and scream a lot kind of movie. Uh, anyways, uh, so they paid for it. They gave me a chunk of money. They said, go away and make a movie. When you get that whole chunk of money, go away, make a movie. You plan it all out around your parameters of what you can deliver with that small chunk of money. I wrote the score first and and created a, the kind of dream-like European hazy, half-awake, half-asleep kind of film I wanted to make. Uh, saying the things about the world that I wanted to say and cloaking them in fantasy like my heroes Rod Serling had done and and using some of the techniques that some of my European favorites, like Jess Franco, Jean Roland, and you know, that kind of sandbox that they were playing in, that was kind of more informed by French New Wave and neorealism. Anyways, uh, so that was kind of the beat of that first film. And it was great because, again, you made the movie. I had, you know, contract was uh, above the credits guy. So it was Chris Alexander's Blood for Arena. And it was my cut. No one could fuck with my cut. And and that was it. And it got distributed. It played theatrically in, in France and got international Blu-ray distribution, DVD. And, and it was all over the place. So, you know, opened in Manhattan at one point for a couple of days. And for a small little movie that cost nothing, it had a little bit of a, a presence. And I was quite pleased with it. And of course, a lot of people were not pleased with it because the editor of Fangoria should be out there making Evil Dead 7. And uh, I wasn't. I was making a very decidedly European meditative blood feast. And that kind of alienated a lot of people. And I was fine with that because there's no risk to any of this, right? I could do whatever I wanted. Now, the whole beat with this kind of stuff I make, and I've stuck with that rhythm. And it's amazing I'm at full moon now. And because I'm still making the movies on the fringe of full moon, 
Charlie lets me still do what I want, which is kind of insane because Fullman's not known for the Blood for Irina-esque kind of films, you know. Although that's not true because I discovered Jess Franco through Charlie Band through his wizard video imprint. Sometimes he even forgets that. Uh, I digress. So I would watch all these movies when I was a kid. They were on late at night at like four in the morning. I'd sleep with an alarm clock that would wake me up and I'd sneak downstairs before there were VCRs. And I'd watch, uh, you know, Cronenberg films and, and uh, Roger Corman movies and European stuff and Blackula and, you know, Mario Bava films and on The Cat's Pajamas coming out of Buffalo, WGRZ. And I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up and I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up. So it was always like I dreamed these movies. And then you wake up the next day and you'd only remember little fragments of them. And that made them more haunting and dreamlike and made you have a personal relationship with them. So my first film, Blood for Arena, was an attempt to create a movie that was uh, that imitated the feeling of being in that somnambulistic kind of 3 a.m. dream state where you were not quite of any world. And it was just you alone with this piece of art. Surprisingly, like your neighbors, your friends, your family. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Now accept the fact that there's no escaping the awful consequences. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Dawn of the dead. They must be destroyed on sight. There is nothing you can do to stop it. It's too late. It's coming to a theater near you. Dawn of the Dead contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. Dawn of the Dead from United Film Distributing Company. capture that feeling you had, you know, waking up and falling asleep during those late night horror films as a kid. Well, hundred percent. Yes. A hundred percent it is. And that's the thing. I mean, if someone dropped like millions of dollars in my lap said, made it make a movie, uh, then, then, you know, I might, and I would definitely do what I needed to do. Um, Cause then I could get some money out of there to fund more of my weird little movies. But um, yes, I mean, absolutely. My films are intensely personal. Some might might accuse me of being uh, pretentious, but I don't think that's the case at all. I, I don't. I'm absolutely not a pretentious person. You know, when it comes to the films, I love all. When it comes to films, I love all films. When it comes to horror, I love all horror. I'm open to all of it. But the kinds of films I want to personally make and stamp my my name on have a very specific uh, sensibility to them, 
And yes, it's trying to recapture a very personal way I felt capturing these movies in that, in that time when I was open to it and I was alone. It was just me and that screen at that point in my life when movies saved me. You know, I went through some rough patches when I was young and my family fell apart and, and uh, there was a lot of, you know, there was violence, there was misery, there was instability. But the one constant was always my quest to discover strange cinema. Um, and the way I experienced and consumed it was by choice, alone. So my movies are very lonely and they're very singular and they're very much an imitation of a mood that I experienced at a certain point in my life. And, and that's what a real filmmaker should be doing. It's drawing from all of that personal experience coupled with your artistic interest and applying it. And it first has to begin with you. Uh, but then there's this other thing. There's, you know, entertainment. You want the audience to go crazy like you did growing up watching all of those movies. They, they drove you crazy enough to do this for your entire life. Um, which, and you've made a bunch of films, which of your films would you consider the most shocking or violent? I don't know. All of them are filled with blood. I mean, the first, I mean, coded in it, but violent or shocking, they're all pretty violent, but not offensively so. Um, certainly the first full moon movie I made, which is probably the only film in my canon to date, which is, I consider not a hundred percent my film because I was definitely trying to second guess and think of what, how I can massage my sensibilities into a full moon sensibility. And that was a little movie we made, we shot up here called Necropolis Legion with, with Lynn Lowry. But, uh, you know, I mean, I guess there's some like hearts being ripped out and tits with teeth on them and all that kind of nonsense uh, buzzing around those movies. So maybe that's the outwardly goriest. Scream of the Blind Dead, the little movie I made recently, which is kind of like, again, a fever dream imitation of the first half an hour of Tombs of the Blind Dead, the way I consumed it when I was little on Paragon Video. I was trying to capture that first half, the way I felt watching that first half hour at like two in the morning. Uh, it has it has a kind you know hearts getting ripped out, chicks getting impaled by swords, and all that nonsense. But I wouldn't actively say that my intention is ever to uh, revolt with the violence at all. I like to use a lot of slow motion. I like to use the blood as um, you know spurting fluids as as something uh, kind of kind of beautiful, kind of. I'll give you an example. One of my favorite films, I just wrote a book actually on Roger Corman's uh, Edgar Allan Poe films. My, my favorite films probably ever are those eight pictures. Um, and among that eight pictures, there's I whittle it down to two or three that are definitely up there in the top 10. And way up there on that top 10 are, is uh, his 1961 film, Pit and the Pendulum. Now that movie opens up, if you know the film, with Le Les Baxter's um, reverberating orchestral percussive score. It comes right out of the American International Pictures logo and all we see is melting liquids, pulsing and flowing and spurting. Now, it goes on for about two or three minutes before it dissolves into the opening shot of John Kerr riding along the California coast, which is supposed to be Spain. And it doesn't really mean anything narratively, but it has cinematic meaning. It has some weird deep Freudian meaning. It's incredibly aesthetically beautiful to watch deep red paint and liquids blend and bleed into yellow liquids, into purple liquids, and 
and it's very orgasmic and sexual and violent. And yet all it is is fluids pulsing and pulsing with that music. It's one of the most horrific and dread-inducing openings to any movie I've ever seen because it hits you in a very visceral, primordial level that you can't even articulate. It bypasses your intellect entirely, and you feel it physically. And uh, I don't know, it hits you in some very amoeba-like way. And, and, and so to me, all the violence in my films is an attempt to try and imitate that spurting, flowing, fluid feeling that's in that first couple minutes of pitting the pendulum to some degree and uh, use gore and blood as um, as a tool to kind of like blank you out into that, you know, reptilian uh, mind state, you know, if I'm being clear. Yeah, very. I'm, I'm absorbing the imagery. Yeah, I'm not trying to shock you and make you go, oh, God, oh, no. I don't, I, you'll never find a chick tied to a chair with a duct tape on her mouth with her mascara running and she's well, some like toothless goon like walks around or go cackling away. You'll never see that in one of my movies. Never going to happen because I don't find that shocking. I just find that obvious and, and annoying. No, I mean, what I'm, what I'm absorbing from this and have for many years, just watching movies and seeing how I put my own interests into application through cinema is that you had this cerebral experience with all of this and it wasn't just your eyes on the screen. It was your state of mind, how you were feeling, and you had these textures, these fluids, these sounds. And to me, those are the greatest films. The things that take us in, it ultimately transmutes the audience. It changes them. And, you know, even if that's not your intention, it's incredible. Obviously, you're recapturing it for yourself. It is, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll tell you this too, because I write all my own soundtracks. The only one I've ever never done is, and it's Necropolis Legion, which I actually co-composed with, with uh, Richard Band, which was cool. I did the temp score and he built the score on my temp. So, but most of it's my music. And by proxy in those first few films, I do all the sound designs too. And I use violent sounds, um, scraping metal and squealing feedback and, and really assaultive um, oral textures as well to really penetrate the audience and create a sense of, of shock and violence and, and impact, you know? And uh, the other thing is too, I should mention, and this is, again, this is, I probably won't articulate it probably because I haven't really thought about it, but the pace of my films are always very languid to put it charitably. I like to slow things down literally figuratively. And some of that I find to be in a way, uh, kind of a punk rock answer to the obvious shocks of horror films. I'm trying to put you in a state where you have a sense of anxiety, but not because I'm setting up some sort of De Palma-esque suspense scene, but because I'm trying your patience and I'm daring you to stick with this. I don't know if that's it's being clear, but I'm I'm trying very hard to immerse you in like the muck. Now you can leave if you want. You can check your watch and say life's too short and bail, or you can stick with it. And uh, I promise you by the time you leave, and if you've stuck with it to the end, I'll have crawled somehow under your skin with this stuff and it's going to probably stick around. You know, that's the attempt anyways, is to kind of run the opposite way from what some violent horror films do with the fast shocks and instant gratification and instead deliver the slow reward. No, I believe you're elevating the genre by doing what you're doing because you're taking a lot of the same thematic elements, but you're displaying it to the audience through a different lens and you're working for something that has pieces of the things you saw coupled with your own experience. So that's what makes it unique. 
I wonder, when you're making a picture, do you consider that young version of you currently, you know, whoever it may be, whether it be your kids or somebody else's kids or whoever, that are so impressionable and they're now receiving your horror films? I don't think I am thinking about... It's interesting because because my films are so small and they're they're so low risk, uh, partially by choice when I venture out to make one. I'm not sitting there waiting for the big deal. I'll never be the person that sits around waiting for the big deal. I'll just go out and do what I want to do. If the big deal comes, it comes. Now, the big deal comes and there's a movie that's being created for a mass market, then of course I'm going to consider what the audience wants. In the case of these little movies, I'm creating the piece and the audience will find it or they won't. I mean, that's that's just the way I'm looking at it. I'm not thinking about hitting that 12-year-old kid at a certain time and making them go, ah, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not thinking about that at all. I'm, I'm thinking of me as the 12-year-old kid working it all out in my skull and I'm making this stuff for me. And if it hits anybody, that's great. Uh, otherwise, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think about delivering the groceries to the, to the young set. There's so many great horror films out there. What I'll do by consider, you know, cause I have so many different appendages in this universe. What I'll do in that respect is with my, one of my magazines, like Delirium, my Delirium magazine, which I, I co-found with Charlie, Charlie Band. Uh, after I quit Fangoria, you know, or when I was with Fangoria. You'll think of the 12-year-old kid reading that and you'll introduce them to the hundreds and hundreds of incredible movies that blew your mind as a kid and you'll enthusiastically document them and dissect them and interview all the players, the directors, the stars and really give them a, a thorough textbook kind of you know immersion into this stuff. That's what I'll do. I'll be the uh, P.T. Barnum of this circus and bring you and indoctrinate you into the weird shit. And then once you're grooving on all this crazy stuff, I will make my way to the egress and I'll go out the back door grab my camera and then make the art I want to make. And then I'll step back on the stage later and show you more of this cool fucking shit. And that's what I do with my own kids. Remember, I'm a father of three little boys and I have been this, uh, you know, ferryman over the river sticks with them forever, introducing them to cinema, all kinds of stuff. No, I mean, this is like our house is nothing but 16 millimeter film prints piled to the ceiling, pinball machines, horror movie. They were raised on film sets. They're never going to forget any of it. It's not one moment. It's all incredible to them. Well, I don't. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. You know, they, they we used to stay at George. They wouldn't even understand that we used to stay at George Romero's apartment because he lived in Toronto, and, and you know all this crazy shit in their life that they've had experiences with that are just their life. Uh, so, I mean, I've been that way introducing them to stuff. Now they're going to take that and they're on their own roads. They're going to do what they're going to do with it. Maybe they'll use it. Maybe they won't. I don't know. I believe they will. So I wanted to talk about Fangoria. You know, it's a magazine we both grew up on. I was obsessed with it as a kid. I still collect it to this day. Your your era of Fangoria was the best since the series of magazines I grew up with, the Bob Martin and David Everett era of Fangoria. It was, you know, for the people that don't know Fangoria magazine, it was the greatest horror movie magazine ever made. And it exposed so many filmmakers, budding filmmakers like yourself and myself when we were kids to, to the point where we committed our lives to it. So many around the world. That magazine was such an influence and gave so much information. It was such an inlet into that world of horror movie making. And for you to have achieved editor-in-chief of the magazine must have blown your mind uh, can you tell me a bit about 
what that was like and, and how it came about? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I can't really, again, articulate properly the feeling. And I was with Rue Morgue for many years. I was a columnist with Rue Morgue because Rue Morgue, I was with them since the beginning. They were, there was nothing like Rue Morgue in Canada. So Fangoria was exotic. And for a young, young man, I wasn't a kid at the time in my 20s, early 20s. Uh, there was no way I was ever going to be part of anything like that. How? Uh, just not possible. But when, so when, um, you know, when Remorque started, that was a big deal. And, and because I was very passionate and knowledgeable, I've always been a bit of an encyclopedia when it comes to this stuff. I found a home there really quickly. And I, you know, did the column. I was writing endlessly for them, every issue and their conventions. And I started, started their radio station, et cetera, et cetera. So I was a big part of that. And then, uh, I started writing for Fangoria. I got in a fight with Rue Morgue because they didn't want me writing for Fangoria. I was like, oh, fuck you. And uh, then I became the Canadian correspondent for Fangoria. And I did that for a couple of years, which was cool, writing cover stories. And anyways, long story short, one day I get the call. They wanted to shake up the world a little bit. They liked what I did. And they were a little bit tired of Tony's, Tony Timpone's tenure. It was a little bit maybe stale. They were looking to move things around. They offered me the gig. Really simple. Of course, I said yes. So it was incredible because you cannot believe. You can't. It's one of those moments. You were raised on this stuff. Fangoria was your Bible. And you're still flashing back to that kid who's sitting there at the outside of the chocolate factory, looking in, drooling, imagining what it must be like inside, but telling yourself, you better give up on that because there's no way you're ever going to know. The next thing you know, Willy Wonka's taking you by the hand inside. I mean, you're like, what? I got the golden ticket? So I was in. And not only that, it was a double-edged sword because, as most people know who are students of Fangoria, I was the editor-in-chief during the Tom DeFeo era when Tom bought Tom bought it out of um, Chapter 11. And Tom being a, a nice guy, really nice guy, but pretty much the world's worst businessman, the world's worst. If I never experience another businessman as poor as Tom DeFeo, I, mean, I, I don't think it's going to happen. It was almost suicidal. And so it was a nonstop battle between the handful of us working at that magazine, trying to get that magazine made and on the stands every month. It was, it was mission impossible. Truly. It was uh, myself, Bill Mahali, the designer who's still my designer at Delirium and Rebecca McKendry, who was our ad girl at the time and has now gone off to be a director in her own right. Um, just doing brutal things, insidious things like taking money, hiding it in PayPal so we could pay the printer and, because we didn't know, it was, it was an agony, absolute agony. I, I really attribute the, the failure of my first marriage uh, to some degree to the stress of trying to keep that mag going. But by the same token, I had complete creative freedom to shape the magazine I wanted to make. And it was incredible. What a ride. Opened incredible doors for me, amazing adventures. And I was able to put my stamp for five years on this, um, you know, let's put it, it's mythical. Fangoria is mythical. And for five years, I was the captain of the boat. And uh, no matter what the price was, oh my God, I would never take any of it back. It was, it was unbelievable. Here's an interesting juxtaposition because whereas you're filmmaking, you had said earlier that you, know, you don't really intend to change the minds of the viewer. It is your journey and wherever it falls, it falls. Whoever it affects, it affects. And I respect that. A lot of filmmakers... Great filmmakers um, feel the same way. But you being the, you having the wheel at Fangoria, it, you must have had a different intention and you must have realized the way it affected us 
the way it blew an entire generation's minds and made them want to either be special effects artists, horror writers, or directors, filmmakers, um, you know, you must have, you had your hands on that wheel. Uh, was that your intention? I did. And I'm a, I'm a teacher too. And before I took over Fango, I was a film history teacher at the Toronto Film College. And I had previously taught classic critical fear on film at Sheridan College, which I now teach again. And my own kids, you know, you always feel like as someone who loves this stuff, a responsibility to inspire and to get people as excited as you are about this incredible history of, of dark fantasy horror cinema. And so that was my opportunity with Fango. I literally thought of it as a classroom. And I didn't do it in a way that it was, you know, the erudite professor wagging his finger at the at the young students. I realized that with Fango, I was inheriting a demographic that had been there longer than I had been reading. So there were different levels. There were different generations of readers uh, consuming this magazine. Young people, uh, people well into their 60s or older. And so the, I, the concept right from the beginning with my version of Fango was to, yes, break some rules, put my stamp on it, get far, as far away from the every other issue being Freddy or Jason or God forbid Twilight or whatever was hot in the theater. Get away from the mainstream because the website could do that. Whatever was hot, new and temporary, the website could handle that. I wanted to go for things that had longevity and that were interesting and uncover some rocks that maybe hadn't been uncovered, if not ever, then in a long time. But also the language, finding a middle ground language that could speak to everybody. You know, devoid of politics, devoid of anything uh, that was condescending, but simply enthusiastically, you know, I own a horror convention too, and the doors are open to all. Come in, enjoy what we love, leave the bullshit at the door. And that's the way I wanted to be with Fangoria. You know, I didn't want to put my politics on the table every issue and say, this is the way I feel about the world. And if you don't, you're a piece of shit. That's not what I do. It's a reason I quit Twitter, <laughs> you know. Um, so that was my my point with Fangoria always was to get people excited and to you know inspire them, and also you know give everybody a pretty a good wide variety. And I think I did that. You know, I think I, I kind of was able to ride the rails. You know, sometimes I'd go maybe too far in one direction and really piss people off. And, but I don't. I don't like. I mean, I remember putting Nicolas Cage on the front, calling him Nicolas Cage, Master of Horror. And I did a two-part cage cover and I got, um, you know, a couple people got it. A lot of people thought it was fucking crazy and I uh, got shit on a lot by the fans, but I didn't care. And now if we flash forward like 10 years later, Nicolas Cage is a fucking master of horror. So fuck you. No, <laughs> no it, it was the greatest era of Fangoria since the series of magazines that I grew up with, that you also grew up with. Um, it was just the best one. You were extremely creative and innovative with it. You took chances and I could, you could see your love for cinema in every page. And it, it's an awesome achievement, man. I'm looking back at an editorial that Bob Martin wrote in one of those early issues. And um, it was about, it was in response to, I guess, one of the letters that were written. And Martin was just saying, this is not a political rag this is a horror movie magazine and we celebrate horror whether you know politics or social politics or social commentary is in the subtext of a movie that's fine but this is something to celebrate horror movies and um you know i noticed that that is now 
you know, the opposite perspective, it seems, even in the new Fangoria and in, in many places in the world right now, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, you know, Roger Corman, again, will always have this great conversation and all, he, an intellectual, as you know, really cerebral guy, right from day one. It's the reason why he survived. He's 96, he's still making movies. There's a reason why he survived. He's, a, he's an intellect. Uh, but again, he's never, his, his concept is every movie needs to have a subtext. The subtext needs to, whether you hope it's right, doesn't have to be right. There has to be some kind of subtext embedded in the film, but it should be embedded carefully enough that the average person can see it if they're looking for it. But if they don't, then that's fine. It's not going to deter or affect their enjoyment of the entertainment or whatever. You know? uh, the subtext should never override the text. That was his philosophy of filmmaking. Now, that's my philosophy for horror, if we're going to call it horror journalism, whatever you want to call it is that the subtext should never override the text. And I, I don't quite understand what the idea... I've never liked the idea of horror as a lifestyle, that kind of shit. I think that's bullshit. That just reminds me of being a kid with the cool kids at the corner at the tight pants and looking down at everybody else. And I was like, always the, I was always the Groucho Marx, not, not wanting to be part of any club that would have me as a member. Like I don't want to belong or feel like I have to be something to belong to somebody else. I want to just be free of thought and autonomous. And I've never understood the idea of uh, shoving your politics down, the, shoving the subtext down first. And that's, you know, uh, there's a lot of great modern horror out there. Lots. My God, I love, you know, all this shit. But it does get nauseating sometimes when they shove the subtext as the, the subtext walks through the door first. You know, I mean, George Romero, one of the greatest social filmmakers, horror filmmakers of all time. The subtext was always in the back. You could always find it if you're looking for it. You could love Dawn of the Dead and not even think about the evils of consumerism or, you know, but if you were looking, it was there. It's a lot of new stuff. You know, the, the subtext comes first and I don't quite get that. And I don't quite understand the philosophy of, to be honest, the, I think what, what they're doing with the new Fangoria, there's a lot of great shit happening with it. A lot of interesting ideas and certainly they've made it commercial and, and maybe socially important. But uh, I don't quite understand the philosophy. And I don't think it's going to have longevity. Because when you position yourself as one thing for too long, like as the righteous, you know, none of us are righteous. We're all flawed pieces of shit. So you're going to, someone's going to look too close and they're going to see the chinks in the armor. And then what's going to happen is they're going to come back and bite you. And then it's over. And this already happened once with Fangoria when it revived, right? Yes. They're, they're, someone looked too close and next thing you know it, they cannibalized themselves they blew up and somebody bought them out again so they have to be very careful I think and understand that the only thing that lasts are the movies the politics don't today's politics are tomorrow's afterthought the movies will last and that's what the you know horror journalism should be focused on the, uh, the iconography the, the, the longevity of this, the piece of work of the art I agree and um, it's so I know a little bit about uh, one of your new ventures is that you're part of the uh, the Full Moon Production Company, which I was exposed to as a kid. You know, my dad owned a video store, and um, I uh, got all those Full Moon movies and posters uh, as they were coming out. So now you're a, a major player over there. Tell me a bit about um, you know what your perspective and your vision is for Full Moon. Yeah, see, <laughs> I just came back from... I'm mean, still in Toronto, but I just came back from LA. I was over there for a few days, uh, meeting with with Charlie. And, and um, Charlie is like, 
I mean, there's Roger Corman, there's Charlie Band. I mean, that's that's it. There was never. But with Charlie, it's just like, yes. I mean, I guess I'm all those things. You wear many hats in the full moon world. And there's many. There's a small team of us. And we're all running the show. And uh, it's a good team. It's a really, really good little team. Now, I, I'm very blessed that I have maybe a, a nice spot at the table. Let's put it that way. Where I can make some calls creatively with what's happening with the company. It's been like that for a couple of years, but it seems to be getting a little bit more intensified. And I also know you're, you know, you you still publish a magazine. You're the editor in chief and and creative director of Delirium magazine, which is also connected to Full Moon. And I have I have yet to see it, but I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, I mean it's it's pretty cool. And Delirium is, you know, some people think because Delirium is published by uh, Full Moon that it's like a Full Moon propaganda. It's not. In fact, they challenge you to find really anything once in a while, but mostly it's a standalone. It's just, it's just Fangoria, Chris's Fangoria volume two is what it is. In fact, Michael Gingold is my managing editor and Bill Mahali still my designer. So it's still the same mag really. Yeah. I have, you know, all of those original Fangoria magazines in a drawer behind me in my office. And, you know, I revisit them constantly. It's that amorphous energy that you get from anything that can help you tap into that feeling you had in those formative years at least for me i i try to dive in as much as possible when i'm creating something oh my god yeah those first few well and also it was just that that time when the gates were open and it was just that yeah we know i mean it's easy for people to get nostalgic about a certain periods in history but in retrospect i mean yes they were they were exciting times the early 80s you know they just they genuinely were because there was just so much discovery with the video boom, the video market opening up. And it was the first taste we were getting too of horror as a global village when we could have access to a lot of these films that we had read about or heard about, but had no way to see unless our local cinema would be spinning an old print or something or a late night television screen dubbed and eviscerated. So it was really exciting. And Fangoria was the reflective of that period. So do you think that as a result of all of the things that have been happening in the last couple of years in terms of us being controlled, locked down, told what to do, in many cases told what to think, how to think, you know, our perception has been dampened in my opinion, and um, we really don't know what's going on, but there's something going on. As a reaction to that, do you think that incredible movies, music, horror films, all of that, as the artist will react and rebel against what's been happening. You know, because in my case, I feel that way. I'm sure a lot of other people feel that way. Do you think that's going to happen again? You know, what we grew up with, there was this explosion of artwork. Do you think that's going to happen again? I don't, I don't know. See, I, I think only a fuel, a fool, a fuel, a fool actually uh, can sits there and goes, this is what the future will bring. It's like, oh, you don't know. None of us fucking know. Uh, before 2020, no one, no one said this is what the future will bring. And no, you know, we know none of us can see it. see what came coming. And so we don't know what the future is going to bring. But all I can look at is I can look at the next generation, and I can look at my kids who, literally, you know, during this period, during that lockdown, uh, right or wrong, there was so much happening, um, and there was a lot of death in my family, a lot of weird shit, and stuff that made you really pay attention to this, the gravity of the situation. But then there was a lot of theater, a lot of bullshit. 
What a posturing. So it was this massive mess of information, and it was all fueled by the internet and the divisiveness of the internet, the misinformation of the internet, the, again, the posturing and the theater of it all. And I think what I see reflected in the faces of my children is that this generation coming up out of that don't trust the older generation and also see through the bullshit of the theater. I really believe that. And I think if you look historically at some of the great movements in horror, they come out of eras like that, don't they? I mean, you look at the German expressionist films were coming out of the ashes of young people in Germany going, ah, fuck fuck our German forefathers for dragging us into war and leaving us in the rubble. And then that was their punk rock answer to that. Then we, we can see that perpetually throughout history, whether it be the great golden age of cinema in the 1970s in America coming out of the ashes of uh, you know, the Cold War and Vietnam and all this horse shit, the death of one generation, the birth of a new. But I really see this, this new generation are not going to be, I don't believe, as placid and like you know, doe-eyed, cow-eyed following the rules. I think it's going to be quite the opposite. I think there's going to be a real sense of rebellion and a sense of, yeah, something, something that goes against that grain entirely. Because I think, and I see it, my kids are so, you know, the, the thought is oh, kids are being saturated with so much media, they're going to be hypnotized and brainwashed. Like, no, what's going to happen is they hit a wall and they tune out and it's going to, they're just going to go, fuck this shit. And they're going to explode. And it's going to go in some other, hopefully, creative way and i think we're going to see a lot of interesting i mean i I think we've been in a golden age of horror for a while for many years actually there's so much good shit because we are a global village and so many different ideas and concepts are coming from all around the world and new platforms where there's perpetual need for content and but i think we're going to see a new exciting birth of, of a new wave of auteurs that are coming out of this world that um yeah that are mad as hell and ain't gonna take it anymore sure I I feel very similar about it. I think the very young kids, as they get older, are going to rebel against this, Um, you know, because there's a lot of theater and brainwashing and posturing going on, and that is not going to last forever. But I feel the rebellion in my 40s more so than ever. I feel it more than I did when I was in my uh, late teens and early 20s living in New York City. So I I also believe that it's not just going to be the kids rebelling against this. It's, it'll be a lot of us making the most incredible work uh, forthcoming. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. But then it's, but it's going to fuel that. So, I mean, again, 40s, the, the new 20, but hopefully it says, says one 40 something year old guy to another, but uh, you know, it's, it's going to be whatever that sensibility creates. Age means nothing, but how, how it's being consumed by young people, you know, and how, how, what battle cry they're going to answer, you know, that's that's the interesting part of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, yeah, a long conversation there, a serpentine conversation. But in a nutshell, I have, I'm perpetually an optimist, anyways. But I have uh, optimism that um, there's interesting shit and interesting sensibility, creative sensibilities on the horizon. I really appreciate the conversation today, Chris. And I ask this of every guest at the end: What if you could? If you were able to, would you take with you on your way out of this world? And I was able to actually physically take something into another plane of reality? It could be anything. It could be memories. It could be anything you think of. There's no wrong or right answer. 
I don't know. And I don't even want to think about that because I'm not, I'm an agnostic. I don't believe that there's necessarily even anything out there. I'm hopeful that there is, but, but I'm not egotistical enough to think that there is. So I don't know if this is the only ride we got. I have no idea. I'll know. I'll tell you this though. Uh, I'm not, I'm not at peace with death. I know it's fashionable to say, oh yes, I'm not, I'm not at peace with death. And I'm, I'm, I'm very afraid of it, but not because I'm afraid there's some sort of a serpent that awaits me once I close my eyes, it's going to judge all my misdeeds, which to be frank are few and far between if I must be honest. But uh, I really am sad that after I die, there's going to be all this great art that I'm never going to see again, or I'm never going to experience, you know, new stuff. And, you know, I, I won't be able to, as much as, you know, yes, I'm going to miss my children. I'm going to miss all this stuff, the creature comforts, but the fact that the planet will keep spinning and keep making amazing things that I won't be around to witness anymore. That's a great tragedy for me. So that's not an answer to your question, but I can't properly answer your question because I don't think that there is something else waiting for me. And if there is, I won't, maybe it's better than this and I won't need to take anything with me. I don't know. We'll see. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for joining us tonight in our celebration of horror movies, special effects, and Fangoria magazine. Chris was the perfect guest for this conversation that I'll probably revisit with others many times in the future. I've been in the magazine a few times over the years regarding some of my documentary and comic book projects, but soon I'll make my first feature horror movie. It's something that I've prepared my entire life to accomplish. It's a destiny that few can only understand. Fangoria magazine lives on and will continue to. Here's to the future of art and cinema. I believe it's going to be a glorious one, regardless of a divided world in turmoil. Next week, we'll explore the legend of James Dean and the curse of the little bastard, the alleged evil car that Dean met his fate in so many years ago. My interview with biographer and Dean historian Lee Raskin is powerful, insightful, emotional, and mysterious. Next week is part one of two, and I look forward to sharing the night again. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight.